Psalm chapter 23, if you need it. Very familiar psalm, but I wanted to take some care to read it together. And as my custom, out of the New King James Version, Psalm 23, God's Word declares a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jude, verse 12. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. And that's as far as we're going to get for the next three weeks, maybe more. I'll read it again just so you make sure you know how far we're going to go. These are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. We are going to enter into a study of this that demands several weeks because we don't have a good handle on most of what has just been shared here. Frankly, we shrug our shoulders and say, so what? Because you don't understand. We have been so culturally insulated. That's the nicest word I could come up with. Insulated from the value of what is being spoken of here. That we really have no idea why this is the very first declaration that Jude has with regards to the interaction negative interaction in this series of pictures, word pictures that he gives us of false teachers with their church. Not because we don't understand the words that are here, although there's one or two that may we may have to uh, rethink a little bit from what you would perceive them to mean, but it's because we are divorced from the event that he's talking about. Not only in our actions, but even in our thinking and in your daily life. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about the theology of food. So you can understand why this is such a dangerous thing to have meals with those who are not of the faith. Particularly certain meals, which are designed by God. I, I think almost all meals are designed by God this fashion for the family, but for the church community for worship. 
And because we have lost connection to what the Bible teaches in this respect, we have dismissed many instructions in God's word with regard to it, and it is evident in your families. We can pick on society at large, and I will do a lot of that in the next few weeks, but I'm going to step on a lot of your toes. Because we simply do not conduct ourselves as God's word instructs us to in this respect. And I'm not really talking about the quantity of what you're going of what you eat. That's really not anywhere on my radar. So if that's on your radar and you're worried about that, you can relax. It might come up a time or two, but it's not the focus at all. We really want to talk about the Bible's position on mealtime and what we consume and why it is important to God and how it is worship. You see, we can't understand why Jude is so concerned about having these individuals involved in our meals together if we don't see the meals together as something other than just stuffing food in our face. If we do not understand them as aspects of our worship, then we won't value this instruction at all. So this morning I'm going to give you an overview, hopefully just to give you an understanding of why is this preacher going to spend weeks talking about our meals. (laughs) Specifically one meal, the love feast. As it is portrayed and described in scripture, and we have to spend some time on that probably next week, really to understand uh, its importance to the early church and to the community of faith throughout history, not only in Christianity, but in many cultures, in many different faiths. The association of what we eat, with whom we eat, when we eat, and why we eat together. We have too long relegated most of this information to cultural differences. But I want to challenge you to start in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, before there was even sin, and tell me, does God care what you eat? The one command was, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You may freely eat. I love that part. You may freely eat of all the rest. Just don't eat that. You see, from the very beginning, before there was even sin, an aspect of our worship, and worship, do not divorce worship from obedience. So when you hear the word worship, you can insert obedience without any issue. Aspect of your worship is in your eating. It is our first failure as a race. That's the human race, by the way, the only race of our kind. There's the monkey race and the dog race, and then there's the human race. Put that in perspective for you. As we go through God's word from Genesis all the way through Revelation, where do we end? What are the descriptions of 
the new heaven, the new earth that you're anticipating. And of all the descriptions, you know what they describe with more words than anything else is what you will be eating and drinking in heaven. It goes through and tells you about the tree of life and how it's going to produce fruit and, and the river of life and that you're going to eat and drink from these things. We also are looking forward to something called the marriage supper of the Lamb after the ingathering of the saints. From beginning to end, the scriptures are so full of discussing our mealtime that it is horrific how much we neglect talking about it as a people, as a facet of worship. We have communion, we have this little cracker, and we have this little itty-bitty cup of juice, and, and uh, those are symbolic and, and all, and, and we look forward to those occasions to celebrate our Lord's sacrifice, um, but what we fail to realize is how frequently that is associated with a full meal, including at its inception. How was Israel to celebrate her deliverance from bondage through a meal called the Passover meal, full of symbolism and, and purpose, extensive instructions on it. Come into the New Testament, and I don't think it's any mistaking that we find Christ engaging in so much activity around mealtime, from the wedding feast of Canaan, the first miracle, um, to the healing of Peter's mother-in-law as they're going after the synagogue and heading over his house so that she could serve them supper. <laughs> Got to heal mom so that she can serve the meal. And we minimize the power within the culture of declarations where the accusation against Jesus was he eats with publicans and sinners. And the incredible blessing that he puts on everyone who invites him to a meal to attend including one guy, Zacchaeus, who's just hanging out in a tree. Come down from there. I'm going to your house today. They're going to have a meal. Throughout Scripture, we're going to find extensively that these aspects of our life need to be done with some more intent than what we give them in our day. And recognize them for what they are is a manner of worshiping God. Why were the Romans so concerned about whether your meat had been offered to idols or not? Because they understood that there is, even in the paganism of Rome, there is a connection between your food and your worship. We're not talking about your salvation. We're not talking about keeping the law, the food laws, and we have those. We talk about them a lot, um, but uh, we ignore some other very important things. 
Uh, we get so focused on the food laws, we forget that they're in the milieu of a whole culture and a whole concept that we are alienated from. And the world has driven it out of us. But the early church knew it. Romans associated this food and this eating with their pagan worship. The question really that Paul has to uh, deal with is, is it okay to go to the market, eat, buy that meat and eat it at home without the pagan worship that is surrounding it? And basically concludes, well, if you can divorce that, go ahead. You have the liberty to do that, but you should think about those that can't divorce that. And in your love for them and concern for them, you should be willing to not eat that meat. Go raise your own crater and slaughter it. In the early church, after its founding, the description of it in Acts Chapter 2, they met house to house daily. And among the things they did was they ate, they broke bread together. We often associate that just with the communion table, but it's very obvious in the next verse where the Luke writes that they ate their meals together. So yes, it, it is matters, and I understand that Jesus said it's not what goes into a mouth that defiles him, but what comes out of it. We have studied that together about the defiling nature of falsehood and false teaching. Um, and so it is not necessarily exactly what you eat, but it is the heart that is involved in this, and that's really what we're addressing today. And it's going to manifest itself in some various ways in your life in your family life, and should manifest itself in our church life. And this we want to explore together as we look into God's Word. Let's go, Lord, in prayer before we do so. Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity to study what really is a pretty critical area of our life that we have relegated to the secular and have really excused you from in many ways. Forgive us of this, Lord, and help us to gain not only an understanding and knowledge, of your instructions and of their purpose, but that we might have a heart's desire to serve and worship you in every aspect of our lives, including this that gets our attention multiple times a day. We pray that you might direct us now by your Spirit. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to talk about food. And we're going to talk about it from the perspective of feasting. Aren't you glad? The fact is that most of you feast every day. Because you live in this country and our access to food is so incredibly easy and vast, you feast every day. That's why Americans generally are fat. Compared to any other culture or country I've gone to, um, even the gals when we traveled overseas, they were like, oh, these Israelis are so fit. And then you come home and it's like, oh, we're fat. And that's true in, Greece, uh, true in almost every country you go to, 
we carry the weight because we feast on a daily basis. We have that much access to food. Not necessarily to nutrition, but to food. We have quantity. <laughs> and it shows. So, but we want to talk about biblical feasting. Because what Jude introduces us to is a feast that we shrug our shoulders at. What is a love feast? But if you don't know what a love feast is, you don't know why feasting before the Lord is so important, then you don't understand why having someone like these false teachers in your feast is so bad. So we're going to take some time. There is so much content here that it's, it's going to be a struggle, really, to thin it down. And that's why I pretty much figured it's going to be weeks and weeks, because there's just so much. So we want to go back to Psalms. I want you to understand the recognition of what we are doing when we sit down to a meal. Essentially, what the, the lingering evidence that we recognize meals to be worship is we say a blessing before we eat. You guys still do that in your house? Quick blessing before you eat? No? Just us? Some of you? Okay. We're getting there. That's about the last little taste of the idea of eating as worship that we have left. As there's something to do with God, and usually it just means that, well, we shouldn't eat this if we're not thankful to God for providing that. And not really understanding that the very act of gathering together and consuming a meal is one of the primary, a primary means of worshiping God. Not last on the list, not unimportantly, but very important. Think about this. This is an activity you do multiple times a day. And when we begin to associate that activity with worship, it gives you an opportunity three, four, five times a day. Some of you maybe only eat two. Some of you, I know, eat five. I know some of you do. Because you eat lots of small portions multiple times a day, which is probably a lot healthier, to recognize not just that God provides, but that God is. He has prepared a table before me, Psalm 23 says, in verse 5. For David, that was very important. It was the culmination of the fact that God is with me. No matter what the circumstances I go through, even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, his rod and his staff, they comfort me. The rod is for correction. The staff is for guidance. They comfort me. Gives a whole new idea to comfort foods, right? He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runs over. He's overflowing me. He has given me all of this. It is a recognition that the goodness and mercy of God is following me. As long as I live here on earth... And it is a reminder that there is a blessing waiting for me in eternity. 
And so, yes, those meals you share with your family and with your church family are there to somewhat represent what is awaiting you in heaven. Psalm chapter 1. In case you think that's an anomaly there, I, I could go through several psalms, and we will be visiting here now and again, as well as Proverbs and many other passages. Psalm 1, blessed is the man. Walks not, stands not, sits not. That's verse 1. Delight is in the law of the Lord, meditates day and night. Verse 3. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The connection of blessedness by God's hand upon what? Your fruit and your water. You have it in its season that you have access to this as evidence of the blessing of God and is a means by which we bless God ourselves recognizing his provision, but much more than that, that he is the one that have created all of this to sustain us. So while we understand the food laws have, have somewhat passed and that we are not relegated to that, I think we're having pork today at my house for lunch, so... You know where we stand on that one. Um, we recognize, though, that there is still a facet of worship involved in our meals. I love the Jewish community that every Friday evening, the Orthodox Jewish community, will gather together at sunset to have a very special Sabbath meal. Sabbath starts sunset Friday. And in every Jewish home, you'll have almost the same traditions. And, and, and you look at this, why the candles, why the smoke in the eyes and the tears and, and all of the assemblage every Friday night. What are they doing? Week after week after week, they are associating this meal with worship. In our home, it's not too different, believe it or not. My kids don't know this. Well, they do because they've lived it all their life growing up. This afternoon, we're going to have a dinner at my house. We use totally different dishes. Isn't that weird? On Sunday. We have a set that we use for Sunday, right, guys? Not just the plates, glasses. I think silver is about the only thing we keep the same. We carefully relish that time. You will rarely see me not go home to eat after church. Um, in fact, it's so rare that uh, I could probably count on one or two hands the times that we didn't go home and eat after church. My children are accustomed to spending every evening meal together growing up. And it was a dinner hour. <laughs> For real. 
And it was more than just, we need to eat this food. Because your family life is part of your worship experience. There were things that God incorporated in certain meals, the Passover particularly, had a single intent. Do you know what that single purpose was? To get your children to ask a question. And the question is, the one they all love, why? Why do we do this? Because in God's design for that worshipful meal called the Passover, it wasn't just to consume this food and to worship individually. It was an opportunity to instruct and teach and to guide our children into a knowledge of the history that we have with God. It is not a time for idle chit-chat. It is an opportunity for us to invest in the sharing of truths, of ideas, of things of value. And here our children are, and I would contend with you that your children's first learning experience of how to conduct themselves in social settings is at your supper table. If you don't demand that they behave like civilized people there, it is no surprise that they don't act like civilized people in church or school or anywhere else. This is the first place they learn it, is at your supper table. This is a place of instruction. We learn how to share, how to pass, how to think of others. I'm putting this all together here for you. I'm trying to... We don't eat until everyone's been served. We're passing. We're thinking about others. We're not just focused on ourselves. We're trying to communicate something important, vital to our children. In our home, we also taught our kids very quickly that if you are truly thankful for what you've just eaten, the evidence of that is that you will get up, clear the table, clean it up, because you didn't prepare it, you didn't pay for it, you can at least clean it up without grumbling, complaining, or fighting. So when you come to my house and you sit at my table, I tell you, don't get up. My kids know what to do. You know what the tragedy is? Is I only have one kid at home now. She thinks it's very unfair. But just to remind her that her older sister was the only kid for a while that could clear the table. What are we teaching? We're teaching all of these things within the context of a family meal. And yes, it matters to God who you eat with. It matters to God how you eat together. These things matter. And the idea that we can just secularize that is foolishness. And when I walk into too many houses and I find out that where's the meal consumed? I look around, where's your, where, where do you eat your meals? Right in front of that thing. We had a big one out the curb. Think about this. Most of the sacrifices Israel had to bring to the tabernacle or to the temple or to God, they were to eat in front of God. Think about that. You're communicating something by where you, what you eat in front of. So when most Americans eat in front of their TV, it is completely appropriate. 
because they are worshiping. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about our mealtimes. My poor wife is like, what is going on? She was not told, I did not prepare her for this at all. You're going to be even more shocked about what's going to happen next Sunday. My wife makes these wonderful meals. They have like two or three vegetables, fruit. We have a starch and a meat and milk and water, and they're phenomenal. Really good balanced diet. Almost always, if we don't have prepared foods, it's a rarity. My kids hardly ever went out to eat. Um, we had home cooked meals. And we'd sit together, we would ha- consume that food. And then when we got in front of the TV, that's when the chips pop, <laughs> candy. That's where that all comes out. Because you might as well eat junk food while you're, eating, while you're watching junk. But when you're spending quality time with your family, have some quality food. Great association there. My kids loved it when every now and then we would watch TV while we ate. Usually we had pizza. And we'd take a tablecloth and put it in the living room. They thought it was huge. I don't know what what had happened, like two times a year or something like that. They thought it was incredible. And then we'd get little cups with lids and we'd have little plates and they have to sit on the tablecloth. It was like a picnic. And um, they thought that was that. So one time they were at shopping with my wife and said they wanted TV dinners because they heard about TV dinners. So they wanted TV dinners. In their mind, they associated with this wonderful little picnic out in the living room, you know. And so my wife bought them TV dinners. And they're like, what is this? <laughs> oh, we never had a TV dinner in our house ever again. But they wanted them. And so we go, this is disgusting. People eat this. <laughs> That's a TV dinner. <laughs> When the world eats in front of its God, it's no different than the Romans going to the temple to eat. Meat offered to Zeus, Apollo, Diana. You see, it does matter, and it makes an impact. It formulates our concept of what is important. So when we sit down at a meal, and we have an opportunity to invest ourselves in the things that God calls upon us to do so with our children and to engage them and them engage us, they begin to learn in that setting their place in God's economy. That they are not there to be served, but to serve. That they must think of others, that these things, that this is, that they don't speak out of turn, that they learn politeness, they learn manners. I have never seen a kid with, that sat in front of a TV and ate have manners. Haven't found it.
We instruct them. This is the place of learning. The place where we direct them to be godly individuals, to understand why do others matter? What are these principles that we are living according to? Is it just our traditions? Oh no, it's much more significant, substantial than that. These are formulating fundamental attitudes that are necessary in the Christian walk. And when we don't exercise them in our homes, you are doing injury to your children in their Christian service in years to come. The basic instructions that we need are right there. To sit, just to sit at a table and eat for an hour. To understand that you have a place, and that place isn't to dominate the conversation. You are a child. Be quiet. Be thankful. Eat what you're served. Don't complain. All of these are lifestyle choices of righteousness that children learn at the table. Even to this day, our family eats together, as small as getting, the evening meal. One meal day, we all sit down and eat. We're not in a hurry. We have really good food at our house. Have I mentioned that yet? And we enjoy the time we have together to discuss what's going on in our lives, in the world, and God's word how they relate together. This is worship. Not just because we invoked God's name in a prayer blessing before we ate, but because we are engaging in something God has called us to, and that is when you eat, eat before me. I find that really hard to do in some settings, to think of that. And when I go into certain restaurants and I go, now we're going to pray. It's going to be really hard with all the noise here. We're going to pray and ask God's blessing before we eat. It's hard with all the other distractions. We're going to do that. It's not hard at home to do that at all, by the way. For there is the focus and the attention is this is something the Lord has provided. He is the one that has provided this abundance. He is the one that has brought forth this fruit. He is the one that has <laughs> given us this table. And while there might be enemies at our table, we're going to talk a lot more about that down the road because that's the focus of Jude. What happens when there's enemies at the table? We need to begin by understanding that the 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 place of the table in our daily life needs to be one of intentional living, that we in, intend it to be something. It's not just haphazard, but we recognize this is worship, this is instruction, this is obedience. God cares. And while there, he calls upon us to feast. And when we usually hear about feasting, we associate consumption Great volumes, right? 
When you think of a feast, you think of great volumes. That's because you're an American, okay? And you associate with, with Thanksgiving. And don't get, we're, we're going to get there too. Uh, it's coming up. Um, but the word feasting in God's word isn't really about huge volume or enormous selection or this, this banquet that's, that's just laid out from end to end, but rather it is about um, having fullness, of being satisfied. And so it talks about feasting at his banqueting table. That there is ampleness within the provision of God and there is sufficient. And not every feast has to have more waste than what is consumed. That is, that is so far from the biblical model that's there. But rather that there is sufficient, and if you are extraordinarily hungry, we will take care of you. If you're not very hungry, then eat a little. But it's that whole idea that there will be satisfaction for everyone at the table. There is sufficient to satisfy. And so we go through the Old Testament, and we look at all of the worship weeks Israel was to take aside, and I want you to notice that they all had food involved. They were to feast before the Lord together uh, multiple days, taking aside not that we're gorging ourselves every day, but that we're recognizing that there is a purposefulness to our eating. And so there were certain foods that we would select. And even to this day, there are certain foods associated with certain occasions. And I'm pretty sure my kids thought that mashed potatoes and Sundays just went, always went together. Um, that's what I thought growing up. Because that was the way my house was, is mashed potatoes every Sunday morning. Sunday afternoon is mashed potatoes. I mean, we made a bowl. It was that big. So, grew up on that. I don't know how I got on that. But we have an intent to understand we are serving the Lord in our worship at the table. And so what we eat matters. And so yes, in some of those meals, there's bitter herbs and you ate them. And yeah, you're supposed to screw up your face, go, ooh, why? Because to remind yourself, your kids of the bitterness of enslavement in Egypt. You're supposed to have those. But we have really divorced food from its purpose of directing our worship. And so you had unleavened bread on this occasion, yet leavened bread on this occasion, and, and there, there was purpose in all of that. And again, inviting, why do you do that? So that we can teach and instruct. And so we walk through the scriptures and we find that Important things happened around meals. And in fact, very few important events occurred without it being celebrated by a feast. That is a way of worshiping God for his wondrous provision, his blessing, his bounty. It is kind of disgusting. that our communion tables boil down to this little cup and this little cracker. 
I don't know about you, but that's not a feast. And you walk away from the boy, I was filling. Satisfied. I said, well, physical satisfaction, it's a spiritual. Yes, I understand that. But for the early church, it was much more substantial than that. And they associated it with a full meal at the conclusion of which they would take this, just as Jesus did after the Passover meal, when everyone was full. Everyone was satisfied because he is the one who's provided all of that. And now we come, and here's an opportunity for you to remember what it is that has filled you already. And then they would take the cup, the cracker, a little piece of unleavened bread, and partake of that in a symbolic fashion, but already having eaten. And that's why Paul says, if you're hungry, eat at home. Um, if, 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 or else just bring enough to share so everybody can eat. You shouldn't be coming to the communion table. Some people hungry and some people overfilled. He condemned them for that. And he said, that's why some of you are sick. And so God wants us to feast before him, that is, satiate ourselves with this physical sustenance as a picture or symbol of the fullness, the satisfaction that God made through Jesus Christ for our spiritual needs. As we meet our physical needs, we are to be reminded of him meeting our spiritual needs. And I got to tell you that the spiritual provision of Christ through his sacrifice on Calvary's cross is not a cracker, and a little itty-bitty cup. It is a feast, a spiritual feast that he has given to us to completely satisfy us. You don't have to go anywhere else to find spiritual nutrition. It is here. It is in Christ Jesus. It is in his word. It is by his spirit. Everything we need, and we go wandering off after these other things, and that's what these false teachers were doing. They're offering, they're dangling stuff out there like, oh, you didn't get to have any of this. I don't want it because I'm full. I'm full in Christ. I don't need, as you study in Sunday school, the philosophies and traditions of men. I don't need that stuff because I'm full in Christ. He has met all of my needs. He is a banquet table. And here in the presence of our enemies, he has filled her need fully. And so we are called upon to feast before the Lord. That we, what we do physically is a, is a picture or a symbol or an act with spiritual significance behind it. And how tragic that we have lost that. We have lost the value of it within our homes that we can't even take one meal a week and say, this is going to be a worship meal. One meal a day. See, we're going to eat before the Lord as a family, as an extended family, as our friends come in, and as my children have brought friends to the table, and, and they're almost, do you guys do this every day? Yeah, every evening. Is this normal? It's not. My kids thought everybody would live like that because they never lived any other way. Then they went to other friends. I was like, they were shocked and appalled. People eat whenever they want. They eat wherever they want. 
They eat however much they want, or little. You know, my kids weren't raised that way at all. Because these are acts of worship before the Lord where we communicate something, and that is our thanksgiving, our wonder at his great abundance, recognizing that this material abundance of this feast before me is simply a reminder of the great spiritual abundance that God has given to me. Not just so that I can consume it and go on my way, why do we have such spiritual abundance is to care for one another. We're going to be developing this. We're going to be looking at the feasts. We're looking at their purpose. But we see from Genesis to Revelation, it is one of the strongest places of worship available to man. We have moved it from a place at the table to a couch in front of our new God. Of course, now we bring the God to the table. Something else you don't do in my house if you want to keep your new God. You will be worshiping God in eternity by eating and drinking. We have patterns of that all through Scripture into the New Testament. We're going to be studying them. And it matters to God how you do it. And I want to just take instruction time and, and to help us understand the great value of eating together, not only as a family, but also as a church family. That this is an aspect of worship. There's one other element I want to touch on today very briefly. It matters not only how, you consume your food before God, where you consume your food before God, but also with whom. So we get into, <laughs> you want to turn to 1 Corinthians. And of course, Corinthians is very concerned about eating and drinking, and uh, this is where we have instructions also about how to partake in the communion table together but it also gives us a church discipline issue that maybe we haven't really thought about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And hopefully this will begin to shed light on why Jude, verse 11, is so important. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, Yet I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Why would he pull that one thing out? Of all things you could do with a person, he pulls this one out and says, listen, 
It doesn't just matter how and where. It also matters with whom. Because once we begin to understand that I sit down to a meal and I ask the Lord's blessing, as soon as I think to even do that, I recognize this is an act of worship. And it matters who is participating in this with me. Now, we're not talking about the world. We bring unsaved people, and we, we have them at our house, and they eat with us, and I don't, and it allows us an opportunity to expose them to some things and to, to discuss things with them, and I do the blessing and all of that, um, and I usually, in my blessing, thank them for being able to be there, Thank God for them being able to be there and to join with us. But um, it's a whole other story if you're in a condition of being a brother in Christ who is in unrepentant sin. Uh-uh. You don't sit at my table. I don't share my meal with you. You've broken fellowship with God. So therefore, you've broken fellowship with his people. And one of the most intimate places of fellowship is not a church service. The most intimate place of fellowship among people is a meal. Paul says, don't you share that intimate place of worship with a person who says they're a Christian but is in unrepentant sin. Don't share a meal with them. And yes, to answer your question, that means sometimes I don't invite family to my meals. I have uninvited family to my meals for that very reason. Because this is a place of worship. And you have flaunted your sin in the face of God and his people, there's no way I'm sharing a meal with you. And it is, and that includes not only in my home, but in a restaurant. I'm not going to do it. I don't care where we go, who I eat with matters before God. Yeah, I would rather take a godless, profane person to lunch than a sinning Christian at a heartbeat. So there are some people that have been in this church that will not be at my supper table and have not been and will not be unless they repent. I don't care the function. I don't care how big a deal it is. I don't care who's getting married or who died. Those Circumstances do not change the commitment to worshiping God in this intimate encounter. But we have divorced the idea because we don't think of our mealtime as worship time. And Satan has done that. When all through Scripture you can't miss the fact that mealtime is worship time. You can't miss it. When we were in Israel, one of the 
features of going to Israel is to go to Abraham's tent. And it was, in both times we went there, we, we went there, and uh, not just because it's great food, it's not that great of food, but it is pretty good. Um, is that date honey that's, that we, oh, I can't get enough date honey in me. Um, and the stuff they put on the falafels, the hummus, oh my goodness, you can't make good anywhere else like that. Not because the food is spectacular. They skit you in there, you get to sit down, they have Abraham wash you before you get in there, and they're trying to portray for you what it was like in Middle Eastern ancient culture of what it would be expected. And, and you can't miss it that when Abraham receives the angel of the Lord and the angelic visitors, um, he's, he begs them, please stay here so I can prepare a meal for you. Why was that so critical? Because I understand that sharing a meal to you is an intimate act of worship of God together. I want to share a meal with you. Please come. Please wait. Go kill the fatted calf. And in that Abraham's tent, we get to have a man portraying Abraham, and he has and he engages us the whole meal. He's talking to you the whole meal while you're eating. He's engaging you, talking to you, referring to some of the aspects of his life, of his family, and comparing it to our lives today uh, or contrasting it to our lives today. And it was it's just a wonderful opportunity to kind of remind, yeah, why don't we do something more like this with our meals? Why aren't they important enough? Because the world has robbed us of the idea that eating is something we do in front of God. And yet, they have stolen the place of God at mealtime. And people do eat in front of their God. And so my question to you is, what God do you eat in front of? How? Where? And with whom? If we have said, oh, that's nonsense, then you've just ripped out enormous portions of your Bible. We are going to explore this. What is the love feast? What is its purpose? So that we can have one and discover the great necessity of spiritual communion in the midst of such an intimate act as eating together. And the best way for me to teach you is to eat with you. So next Sunday, 10.30, we're having supper. Bring enough to share. It will be our service. Not after the service. It will be our service. As we discover, again, feasting as worship. And why is it so vital that we keep that time pure and intentional? 
hope you'll come. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us that is demonstrated by the great abundance that you have provided. And the evidence of that is a feast where all are satisfied. As we have that picture for us every day to remind us that you are every day satisfying all of our needs, even our greatest ones, our spiritual needs. Lord, may we never eat a meal again without being reminded that you are the one who has prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies. That you have blessed us with great abundance. The leaf does not fade. The fruit comes forward. Lord, we look forward to the eating in your presence in eternity in, in heaven. Lord, we want to declare that as we eat before your presence here on earth. As families, as a church. Lord, we do thank you for such a powerful message. Lord, we have robbed it. We've allowed others to rob us of it. And Lord, we pray that you might bring us this understanding, also bring us a true communion with you. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.